Jeremiah's day, it wasn't all that popular to be a follower, a committed follower of Jehovah God. The uh, text that we're going to uh, leap from tonight, you might say, is Jeremiah chapter 10, where Jeremiah is talking to the, uh, uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, those who were dwelling in Jerusalem and in Judah and the surrounding areas who had rejected Jehovah God and followed after the false gods of the world. If you read Jeremiah chapters 1 through 10 and even thereafter, you'll see many rebukes that Jeremiah made and those rebukes were at the risk of his life. In fact, uh, toward the end of um, Jeremiah chapter 10 and especially Jeremiah chapter 11, you will see that his life was threatened for the message that he was that he was delivering. I'm very thankful that we can still stand up in this country and in many places around the world and we can preach the one true Jehovah God, the creator of heaven and earth, and that we can do so without facing the kind of retaliation that Jeremiah faced when he was on this earth some 2,600 years ago or so. But the fact is, there are those who doubt Jehovah God today. There are many and it seems a growing number of militant atheists who would claim things such as God is a delusion, or people who believe in Him are delusional. Or Brian Fleming's DVD that he came out with a few years ago titled The God Who Wasn't There, addressing more of the uh, alleged not-so-historical nature of Jesus Christ. Or maybe it was Christopher Hitchens. Maybe you've, uh, you were familiar with his book that came out a few years ago, became a New York Times bestseller, God is Not Great. Christopher Hitchens is now in the afterlife. I can guarantee you, based upon what I know the Scriptures teach, that he knows now that God is great, and that has to be one of the worst things that a human being could write. Maybe you are familiar with another book by Victor Stinger on God, The Failed hypothesis, how science has supposedly disproven God. It is alleged that God is a figment of our imagination, that He is dead. Richard Dawkins, in a uh, Time Magazine article a few years ago that was written by someone else, but Richard Dawkins was quoted and, if I remember correctly, interviewed in the article, in which he said, if there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything any theologian of any religion has ever proposed. I don't know if Richard Dawkins has really read the God of the Bible because that God is bigger and more incomprehensible. And in fact, you cannot get bigger than an omniscient, omnipotent, eternal, uh, infinite being, the creator of heaven and earth. Richard Dawkins, along with many others, were at a symposium, a conference, a science conference that took place in La Jolla, California, several years ago, Michael Brooks was the author of an article that summarized some of the things that took place in this conference. And as you can see on the screen behind me, that they titled the article very simply, In Place of God. It appeared in a New Scientist uh, journal, a particular edition of it a few years ago. And in that article, they quoted from several scientists, including Richard Dawkins and uh, several others around the world, very big names, um, Stephen Weinberg was another gentleman. Another atheist by the name of Neil deGrasse Tyson was one who was uh, lecturing there at that conference. I wanted to share with you something that he said in regards to the... Uh, in seeing the kind of militant atheism that uh, is, is becoming seemingly more prominent around the world today. 
So he's at this symposium, this conference in La Jolla, California. And at that conference, he stated, well, it was reported by Michael Brooks, the author, that he spoke with an evangelist zeal. And then uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson referred to a poll taken by the uh, U.S. National Academy of Sciences which revealed that in this academy, in this group of scientists, only 15% of those in the group did not claim to be atheists, but claimed to believe in some kind of higher being. To which Neil deGrasse Tyson responded, how come the number isn't zero? That should be the subject of everybody's investigation. That's something that we can't just sweep under the rug. So this will give you just an idea of how adamant that some have become in espousing atheistic doctrine, in espousing the idea that there is no God. To Tyson and God-believing members of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, theistic, God-believing members of that academy represent a problem that needs to be addressed. You're probably familiar with, you probably either watched or at least heard about a movie that came out a few months ago called God's Not Dead. I saw the movie and overall I thought it had a, a, a good message with a few things that I wasn't very pleased with, but overall I thought it had some good, uh, a good message. One of the, the uh, main characters in the movie was a professor who was challenging his students about the existence of God and claiming that God does not exist, really didn't want to talk about that, and asked if there was anyone who disbelieved what he was saying, and there was a student who, who spoke up. Now, I want to show you a statement from a, a USA Today movie critic, Claudia Puig, who uh, stated about this kind of idea that there would be professors doing this around the country, that the contrived premise of the movie God's Not Dead is anything but credible. She dismissed the idea of a professor at a respected academic institution ever criticizing religion as a primitive superstition, saying even if a teacher believed this, it's highly unlikely he would declare it to a class full of students. I was surprised that there would actually be someone who is halfway informed in this country who would make a statement like this because the fact of the matter is, and the reason I'm introducing this lesson this way, is to... uh, let you understand that we're not just building up a straw man here this evening or that we're not just addressing an issue that's not really an issue because the fact is it's very much an issue. In fact, not too far from here, you can go to a university that a young man was at a few years ago who told me later about the encounter he had when he was in a science classroom with a number of other students in the classroom with him. And he said at the beginning of the semester, the professor said, if you believe in God, stand up. And he said he was one of seven people who stood up in a a very large class. I'm not for sure exactly how many students there were. And the professor then responded to to this gentleman and the other six students who stood up, he said, by the end of this semester, not one of you will stand up when I ask that question. And he said, sure enough, at the end of the semester, the the professor asked the question once again, does anyone in here believe in God? If so, stand up. And he was the only one who stood up. The gentleman who was telling me this story in southern Alabama a few years ago. I was mentioning that very encounter to... uh, a group of young people here at Dalreda a few years ago in the teen class. I don't know if it was on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. Will or someone had invited me to come and talk to the teenagers. And after class, there was a young lady who had attended the same university a few years later from what I could detect based upon her age. And she said, the very same thing happened to me. This is a young lady who was attending this congregation after this occurred. I don't know if she grew up here or not. 
The fact of the matter is there is a loud contingent today, not a large contingent, but a loud contingent of Americans who are claiming that God is dead. And it does appear that there has been some success on their part, I hate to admit. You, know, you can go back several years ago to when my parents, my dad at least, was just a youngster, when uh, the vast majority of Americans would claim affiliation with the Protestant uh, Christian movement or Catholicism, and that does not include all of your Jews and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons in this country. It was, people were very well aware that the vast majority of Americans believed in a higher being, believed in the Creator God, and that there was just a small, minute percentage wise of those who did not believe such. Flavel Yakely came out with a book just a couple of years ago called Why They Left. And in that book, he claimed something very similar to what you just read on the screen behind me in the previous slide, that uh, in 1950, we could assume that most people around us uh, already believed in God and Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Bible as the Word of God. That was in uh, 1950. According to three different surveys that were done in 1990 and 2001 and 2008, extensive surveys where, if I remember correctly, over 150 to nearly 200,000 households were surveyed uh, in those three surveys that were done total in those uh, three different years. When I was 15 years old in 1990, there were 8.2% of Americans who claimed to be non-religious, most of those being... this the atheists, agnostics, or skeptics. Not many years later, in 2001, that number had jumped to 14.1%. By 2008, it had reached 15%. And according to a USA Today article that was uh, published just a couple of years ago, Kathy Lynn Grossman uh, said that there were aggregated surveys that she checked uh, according to the Pew Research Center, which indicated that now nearly one in five Americans claims no religion whatsoever. I don't know exactly how many of those, that 19% or nearly 20% now, how many of those claim to be pure atheists or agnostics, but it would seem that there is a growing number, a loud number, you might say, a loud percentage. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 1. I just want you to see the kinds of things that Jeremiah was saying to his hearers his day. He wasn't necessarily having to deal with pure atheists, uh, but he was dealing with those who were, at the very least, rejecting Jehovah God and going after a lot of false gods, to which he was pronouncing a coming judgment coming from the north, chapter 1 and verse 14, to those who had forsaken Jehovah, verse 16, who had burned incense to other gods and worshipped the works of their hands, who were following idols, chapter 2 and verse 5, who had forsaken Jehovah God, chapter 2 and verse 13, who would, verse chapter 2, verse 21, saying to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone you gave birth to me. They had forgotten Jehovah days without number, chapter 2 and verse 32. They defiled the land and they committed adultery, chapter 3 and verse 9, with stones and trees. You can go chapter by chapter in Jeremiah and see the, the things that 
he was rebuking in his day, though maybe not identical to what we are seeing in our culture today, there were many similarities, especially that of being a growing percentage of people rejecting Jehovah God. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God, chapter 5 and verse 24. And because of that, disaster was coming from the north, from the hand of the Babylonians, chapter 6 and verse 1. Jeremiah said, quoting God, chapter 8 and verse 19, Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with their foreign gods? Chapter 10 and verse 2, He was pleading with them not to learn the ways of the Gentiles, to be dismayed by the signs of heaven. There were those who were worshiping the stars, worshiping the moon, worshiping the sun. There were those who were practicing astrology and the customs of these people, chapter two and or excuse me, chapter ten and verse three were futile. They were vain, they were meaningless, they were they were cut out. The gods that they were serving, they were cut out from the trees that they could see growing in the ground. They would decorate them. They were purely of human production, chapter ten and verse four. And yet, notice the contrast that the prophet Jeremiah gives to these false gods. Chapter 10, verse 6. The supremacy of Yahweh is seen of Jehovah where he says, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might. In contrast to Christopher Hitchens' book, God is not great. The prophet Jeremiah says to God Almighty, Jehovah God, you are great. For there is, for this is your rightful due. For among all these men, verse 7, of the nations and in their kingdoms, there is none like you. Chapter 10 and verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. He is the everlasting God. Our God is the true God. He is the living God. He is the eternal, infinite, uncreated omniscient, omnipotent ruler of the universe. And the fact of the matter is, although it is helpful and it is encouraging to have the Word of God tell us that, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. They have been clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. Sadly, in Jeremiah's day, they were worshiping the things that were made rather than recognizing that the things that are made they declare the glory of God, Psalm 14, 1 through, uh, 1 through 4. The fact of the matter is this is really not all that complicated. I realize that uh, one of the tactics, it seems to me, of unbelievers is to try to muddy the waters, to try to think, make things much more complicated than they are. But the fact is, it's really not all that complicated. We can know that God exists. We can know that God exists to make things very simple because matter demands a maker. I know I don't have five or six hours this evening. I was just in the country of Panama a week or so ago, and I had the opportunity to spend an entire week talking about some of these things. And I realized, Doug, you said I have just uh, three and a half? Not, no, not that long, quite that long of the night. But I want to go ahead and just share with you several points and then expound on as many of them as we can, which may not be many. But first of all, we can know that God exists. You can know that God exists because you exist. Because material things exist. Because the material universe 
exist and matter demands a maker. Secondly, life demands a life giver. Life is here. Life demands an explanation. And I submit to you that atheism and agnosticism cannot provide such an explanation. Thirdly, very simply, design demands a designer. We're not talking about accidental design that may be found on a rock cliff somewhere because of the wear and tear of a rock, because of the wind and the rains that beat against it, and perhaps other rocks that fall against it. We're not talking about uh, the face of a rock where that has been chiseled accidentally and that we just kind of imagine it to be a face. We are talking about complex, functional design seen all around us in the universe. It demands an adequate explanation. It demands a designer. Fourthly, morality demands a moral lawgiver. The very fact that there is objective morality, at least those who will admit that there is, which even many atheists have and do, because if they do not, the alternative is to believe that anything could be okay at any time. The very fact that if one admits to objective morality, then they must admit to a moral law giver. At least logically speaking, they must. And then uh, fifthly, the Bible's supernatural attributes demand a divine author. We just spent an entire week at church camp about a month ago or so, and you had 30 to 40 from this congregation who were there talking about the amazing attributes of divine inspiration. We do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God merely because it claims to be the Word of God, though that is a very helpful claim. And you would expect a book that comes from God to say it is from God. But the fact is, it has qualities that you would expect from a book that comes from or says it is from a divine author. A supernatural origin is what we see as we read through Scripture whether it be because of the prophetic utterances in it that have come true over hundreds of years of time, from the destruction of cities like Tyre to the uh, rising of kingdoms like Babylon to the coming of a kingdom to rule over it like Cyrus, who was prophesied 200 years before he began to reign over Babylon to, uh, um, or to the Medes and Persians. Uh, to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was prophesied hundreds of years, even thousands of years, before He ever set foot on earth in the form of Jesus the Christ. Which leads me to the last point, and then we'll go back to the first one. And that is that Jesus the Christ demands an answer. How do people explain the fact that He truly did live 2,000 years ago? That He truly died? that the tomb in which he was buried was empty, that his body was never found, and yet the eyewitnesses were there to claim that he had risen from the dead, and that the, those who also witnessed his resurrection from the dead witnessed many miracles that he worked that have been documented in the most historically documented, ancient, inspired, and only inspired book that is on this Earth. Well, these are just a sampling of reasons why we can know that God exists. Well, I'd like to go back and look at, I think, probably the, the most fundamental, foundational one of them all, and that is that matter demands a maker. We are here in a universe that is absolutely gargantuan, and you cannot even come up with a statement really to adequately describe the universe in which we live because it's like there aren't uh, adjectives that are adequate enough to describe 
where we are in relation to the universe itself. We are in Montgomery, Alabama, on, in, this, in the state of Alabama, on the continent of North America, in a, on a planet with several other continents that if you could uh, travel thousands of miles per hour would take you days and days and days and days to get to other planets. In fact, it is said that if you could travel the speed of light, it would take you some 500,000 years to cross the diameter of our one galaxy. And our solar system is one small part of the galaxy that is, we call the Milky Way galaxy, which is light years and light years and light years away from the fifth next closest galaxy, Andromeda, which is one of what astronomers estimate to be one of billions, literally billions of galaxies in the observable universe. Well, where did it all come from? You see, matter demands a maker. And that is a very rational statement when you consider the fact that every material effect must have an adequate cause that comes before it or is simultaneous with it. That is not a a law that we define every day, but it is very much a law that is recognized uh, and one that is uh, accepted. In fact, W.T. Stace wrote years ago that this is the ultimate canon of the sciences. Everything which has a beginning has a cause. The foundation of all the canons of the sciences is this very thing. We understand that material effects must have causes, and they must be adequate causes. My esteemed colleague, Rob Baker, who's here tonight, I'm not for sure why he... uh, did not just head on out of town tonight, I guess because he loves this congregation so much, because rumor has it that he's about to celebrate his 15th anniversary. Is that Rob, I didn't know you were that old, man. Because I know Mallory's not that old. 15 years? So they're heading out of town, I hear. I'll tell you what city and, and, and what hotel they're in, so you can call them as much as you want, I'm sure, tomorrow. No, I wouldn't do that, because I don't know, and I don't need to know. Anyway, uh, if I said that Rob Baker came here tonight on the back of one of his children's matchbox cars. Well, that is a ridiculous statement because Rob, I'm not going to say he's too big, but he does weigh just a little bit too much for him to to get here to the Dalrada Church Christ building on the back of a matchbox car. And the reason you quickly know how odd that thought is is because you understand that material effects must have causes that come before it and are or simultaneous with it and our adequate causes. The 14 individuals that we had go to uh, Panama a couple weeks ago from from Wetumpka, we didn't fly fly to Panama on the back of a hummingbird. We didn't get there in a paper airplane. We got there on a large jet that flew from Atlanta all the way down to Panama City, and then we got on another one to go to Davie, and it took an adequate cause to make that happen. And yet, the causes that unbelievers, that atheists give for the universe itself are absolutely nonsensical. And I submit to you that the only adequate explanation is an almighty God, the God, Jehovah God, whom we read about in the Word of God that we call the Bible. This is the explanation that we've been given for years now, for several decades, that everything was all bound up in a small ball of matter that exploded some 14 to 15 
this was when they were estimating it was 18 or 20 billion years ago. Well, is that really an adequate explanation? Richard Dawkins doesn't really seem to care that much about it. At least that seemed to be his attitude in his book, The Blind Watchmaker. Richard Dawkins being the most famous atheist in the world today. He said he basically takes the idea of, uh, of physics and the facts of the world for granted because he says he's a biologist. He says he leaves the problem of ultimate origins up to, uh, to the physicist. So what does the physicist have to say about this? Well, let me quote to you one physicist. His name is uh, Dr. Peter Coles, an uh, evolutionary physicist who wrote an article in New Scientist magazine a few years ago titled, What Put the Bang in the Big Bang? At least that was the cover story title. Now, Dr. Peter Coles knows more about Big Bang theory from an atheistic perspective than probably 99.999% of people on this earth. He's studied it more. He's written more articles about I think I read somewhere where he wrote about 100 articles that have to do with this subject, peer-reviewed articles that are appearing in journals all over the world. And so he wrote an article, the title of which really intrigued me a few years ago when I saw it, What Put the Bang in the Big Bang? Maybe they were going to give us some kind of cause for the, uh, the Big Bang that allegedly caused the universe in which we live. His first answer disappointed me because he said near the beginning of the article that inflation caused the Big Bang, but inflation is something that occurs after the bang. It is that ultra-fast expansion of the universe that happens in a millisecond that causes most of the growth of the alleged 14 billion light-year observable universe. But I want you to see what he went on to say. You don't have to really know all about inflation to get some things that he's saying in this article, some concessions that he is making. He said there is little direct evidence that inflation actually took place. So notice he said that uh, inflation is what gave the oomph to the Big Bang. It's what put the bang in the Big Bang. And then he went on to say, well, we, uh, we really don't have any direct evidence that inflation actually took place. He said, what's more, we still don't know what it would have caused it if it did. So how confident could we be that inflation is really a part of the universe's history? He said, Alan Guth, who was the physicist who proposed this uh, this uh, theory as part of Big Bang Theory in order to continue to prop up Big Bang Theory because it was having so many problems... He said uh, he cannot prove that this inflation actually happened, nor can he suggest a compelling physical reason why it should have. And then Dr. Peter Coles went on to say, within just a few years, inflation had become an indispensable part of cosmological theory, of Big Bang theory. It was something that was helping prop it up because it was having so many problems. The only problem was there wasn't a shred of evidence that inflation had actually happened. And so this is what he concluded in the article. He said, we don't know for sure if inflation happened, and we are certainly a long way from being able to identify the inflation. And notice that this is stated when at the beginning of the article he claimed that inflation is what allegedly put the bang in the Big Bang. He said, in a way, we are still as confused as ever about how the universe began. But perhaps now we are confused on a higher level and for better reasons. I'm not making this up. This is how he concluded the article. Perhaps now we are confused on a higher level and for better reasons. Do you know why, why a man who has studied this theory as many years as he has and written as much about it as he has is still as confused as ever? Because he's going to the wrong place for the wrong answers. This is not an adequate explanation, says the law of causality or the law of cause and effect. The entire universe did not come from nothing. That is not only a bizarre statement, it is an absolutely ridiculous statement. So says not just the creationist, so says not just the Christian, 
not just Doug Smith or David Owen, says even atheists, even though they claim that ultimately everything came from nothing. In a, uh, a television program that was aired a few years ago on... Um, see, what, what station was this? It was Curiosity. Oh, on the uh, Discovery Channel. And the, the, uh, the show was titled Curiosity. And the, the first program they put out, if I remember correctly, was Did God Create the Universe? And the, the famous uh, astrophysicist and cosmologist um, Stephen Hawking, he was the one narrating the program. And in this program, he said that space and energy were spontaneously created. Isn't it interesting how atheists use the words, they steal our terminology. You know, they steal words like designed and created. How do you have something created without a creator? Well, they just say it just happened. You see, it just spontaneously occurred from nothing in the big Bang. And then he went on, if this wasn't clear enough, he went on to say in this program, he said, nothing caused the Big Bang. Isn't that convenient? So our gargantuan universe that is estimated to be 14 billion light years across, which let's face it, folks, no one knows. Do you think someone really knows how long it would take if you could travel the speed of light to get from one edge of the universe to the other edge? We don't know that. It's guesstimated, just like they estimated or guessed back, uh, I don't know, about 30 years ago that there were 25 sextillion stars in the observable universe. That's what they really, they kind of felt like that was about the right number. And then 20 or 30 years, and by the way, sextillion? Yeah, what is that? Uh, it's, it's 25 followed by 21 zeros. I, I didn't know that until I had to look it up because out in Oklahoma, we learned our multiplication tables and we learned our tens and hundreds and thousands and maybe, maybe millions. That's about as far as we got out there. I moved to Alabama and I found out y'all only went to thousands. Is that right out here? I'm just kidding. I love Alabama and I love Oklahoma. Anyway, um, let's see, I don't even remember where I was now, but uh, we'll just move on from there. So, uh, oh, yes, those 25 sextillion stars, well, now in the last couple of years they've said, well, we were off. They were only off by 275 sextillion. Now they say there's an estimated 300 sextillion stars in the observable Universe. Well, the fact is they don't know and how ludicrous it is to think that it all came about from a Big Bang, which allegedly the smartest atheists in the world say came from nothing. Dan Barker, in a debate that he had with Todd Frill, you may remember the name Dan Barker because he debated uh, our colleague Kyle Butt, our brother Kyle Butt, a few years ago in uh, South Carolina. Well, he was debating a man by the name of Todd Frill a few years ago who asked him, do you really believe that something came from nothing? from nothing. And he said, very simply, in the debate, like it's a matter of fact. Yep. So there is no God. There is no supernatural being. It's just matter. And matter is here today. And matter somehow just popped into existence from nothing. They would choose to believe that rather than to believe that it implies there must be a creator who brought it into existence. After explaining what he believes, going back to uh, Stephen Hawking, what he believed happened 14 billion years ago when the universe allegedly came into existence. This is what Hawking said. I want you to see this. This is the arrogance that is seen in the kinds of statements that unbelievers make. He said that is exactly what happened at the start of the universe. 
Think about, you know, it's very easy to listen to uh, narrators in documentaries like this and to hear people talk that you think just, well, they just must be smart people. You know, like when you're talking to Dean Sanders and he tells you something, you're tempted just to accept it as fact because you think he's just a smart man. Well, I think Dean's going to tell you the truth, but, um, you know, if somebody starts saying some crazy things, you might want to just ask how they know that. Well, so often what happens in the... Uh, the uh, upper echelons of academia and, and among a lot of these uh, atheists that you hear talking at symposiums like the one that took place in La Jolla, California, is they say things and it's like people don't really question. Oh, so it just sounds so good to say that that is exactly what happened. For, how does he know what happened 14 billion years ago, Doug? He wasn't there. But allegedly, he's seen the signs in the heaven, I, I suppose. You see, the reason that Christians can be confident and we're not arrogant, but the reason that we can say we know is because the one who was there, the one who was doing the creating, the one who revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, the one who has communicated these truths in his word, told us what happened. And so we can say with all the confidence in the world, though with also humility, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, or meekness, that we know what happened. Happen. Here is a man who claims there is no God and there was no one around for 13.996 billion years, no humans anyway, until they evolved from monkeys allegedly or ape-like creatures. And he says that's exactly what happened billions of years ago. That something came from nothing. That the Big Bang came about from nothing. That makes no sense. In fact, I can tell you that it makes no sense and I can back it up, not that I need to necessarily, with even atheists who admit it makes no sense. You can go to YouTube and you can see a uh, somewhat of a kind of a debate that Richard Dawkins had with a gentleman down in, a couple of men down in Australia a couple of years ago. And it was on an Australian news station. And in that, uh, the discourse that was occurring there, Richard Dawkins stated this about getting something from nothing. This is what he said in the, it was more than an interview, but it's kind of somewhat of a debate. He said, of course, it's counterintuitive that you can get something from nothing. And just so that we're on the same page here, when he says counterintuitive, he means what we read in Webster's Dictionary, that it just doesn't seem right. It is just not natural. And so he admits that it's counterintuitive that you can get something from nothing. And then he says, of course, common sense doesn't allow you to get something from nothing. I rest my case. Why do I believe in God? How can we know that God lives? Because matter exists. The material realm exists. The material universe exists and demands an explanation. And here is the leading atheist in the world who says, common sense says it couldn't have come from nothing. But guess what? That's what we choose to believe. Well, if common sense says something in the material realm cannot come from nothing, I choose to believe in what is sensical. And that is that it must have been created by someone who is not in the material realm. By the way, there was an article that appeared in this New Scientist journal uh, only a a couple of months after the uh, article I quoted from a few minutes ago, um, What Put the Bang in the Big Bang by Dr. Peter Coltz. Well, there was another article that came out that sounded somewhat similar to that one, and I don't know exactly why they came out with two stories, lead stories, cover stories that were so similar. I can only 
guess that it might have been they received a lot of negative criticism because of the admissions that Peter Coles was making. And so they came up with another article. This is the beginning. I'm always interested in what atheists have to say about the beginning. Because as of yet, I've only heard foolishness. And I say that with all due respect about the beginning from an atheistic perspective. We've just seen some very foolish quotations from Stephen Hawking and Dan Barker and actually a nice admission, you might say, from Richard Dawkins, though he would still claim there is no God. Well, here is a statement in this particular edition of this magazine. After they went through a lot of possible scenarios or explanations or models for how everything got here, for the origin, the beginning of the universe... And they concluded with these words. And to me, this is so telling in regard to what they are willing to admit about their theory. The most likely outcome, however, is that none of the models will be proved correct anytime soon. That's because they're not correct. But anyway, let's move on. Indeed, the quest to understand the origin of the universe seems destined to continue until we can answer a deeper question. Why is there anything at all instead of nothing? Is it already time to... Hmm. Why is there anything at all instead of nothing? That's a great question, isn't it? Because if you believe that there cannot be a supernatural creator who is outside of the physical realm, but the physical realm is here, and at one time there was no physical realm, then the question they ask is, then why is everything here? And the only adequate answer is because it was put here, because it was created by God. We can know that God exists because matter demands a maker. So says the law of causality. So says the first law of thermodynamics, which is a long kind of cumbersome name or title of a law that says and that is recognized to be true all over. That's why it is a law that in nature, matter and energy are not created or destroyed. They are not in nature. They're not created. They don't go out of existence. They wear down, so says the second law of thermodynamics. But if that is the case, if it's not created or destroyed, then you have the statement that was made in the previous slide I showed you. Why is there anything at all instead of nothing? If matter is neither created nor destroyed and matter is here, it had to have come from someone. And by definition... God is the only adequate explanation for everything that we see. There are a number of reasons that we can logically believe that God exists. I would like to say I'll get to the other five in our devotional period, but I don't know that I'll make all of those. But the good thing is I got through at least all of them. I just only got to expound on one of them. Thank you for your good attention. I think we're dismissed until the devotional period. Is that correct, Doug? Okay, thank you very much.